Well, this morning we are going to go ahead and look at the Christmas story. You know, it's difficult for us pastors because uh, I've, this is actually the 10th Christmas that I have preached here at Christiansburg Baptist Church. I was doing some preaching before I came as pastor. Uh, July 1st of next year, I'll celebrate my 10 years of being here as pastor. But I had actually started preaching some off and on from August of 2010 on. So this is my 10th year of preaching Christmas messages at Christiansburg Baptist Church. And the hard part is, as a pastor, you feel like you kind of need to have some new material. You know, you got to keep it fresh. I actually heard Jeff Foxworthy one time speaking to pastors about that challenge because he said, you know, if you're the Eagles, you write one song in the mid-70s and you can ride that thing out for the next 50 years and keep playing it at every concert. But Jeff Foxworthy was saying that pastors are similar to comedians in that you've got to keep writing new material because nobody wants to hear the same bit that they heard 30 years ago. So it's kind of an interesting thing. When it comes to Christmas, that always makes it difficult because there's the expectation that we're going to look at Matthew 1 and we're going to look at Luke 2 and those passages. So how do you keep bringing these messages in such a way that it's unique and it's different and it's kind of got a different slant each year? Well, this year, as we've been talking about it, over the last several weeks, we've really wanted to focus on the hope that we have at Christmas. By the way, we're going to be looking in two different passages. Um, so go ahead, and if you've got a paper Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it up to Luke 2, which is where we're going to start, and to Matthew chapter 1. Keep your finger both places. If, you've got, uh, if you're using your phone, you may have to jump a little bit, or maybe get your husband to look at one, and you pull up the other, and you can go back and forth. But as we're looking at this, we've been talking about last week about John chapter 1, and we talked about the hope that Jesus was bringing to the world. We talked about light coming into our darkness, that he was bringing us back to himself, and that through Jesus' life, then through his death and his burial and his resurrection, anyone who will put their trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord can become a child of God. That's the hope that we have at Christmas. And we've talked about the fact that, that anybody who will believe in Jesus through his death, his burial, and his resurrection has that very same hope. Now, as we're going through that, though, I imagine that there's probably somebody who's either listening to this or watching this or somebody that you know who would hear that message about the fact that Jesus came to the world to love, to live, and to die, to be raised, and to offer you eternal life. You hear that message and say, that's a very hopeful message for somebody else. You know, that, that's, that's a lot of, of great things. Maybe it's because you think that you're academic enough, you're learned enough, that you don't need a crutch of religion like that. And so for those who are more simple-minded or more emotional, that's a wonderful crutch for them, but I, I don't need that. Perhaps so for you, it's because of everything that your mom ever told you or that your dad ever told you or that the people at school told you or your ex-spouse told you or whatever it is about what you're worth. You've heard over and over again that you're worthless, that you don't matter, that you can't ever amount to anything. You can remember those words from your sixth grade English teacher who told you you'd never amount to anything and they still sting you some 40, 50 years later. So you hear this message that there is a hope out there for anyone who will put their trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord and you say, that's wonderful for somebody else, but certainly it's not for me. Here's what I want you to see as we look at Luke chapter two and Matthew chapter one and pull these passages together. We're going to kind of do some bouncing around between things to hopefully pull together the characters of Christmas some to help you to see that no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you have done, no matter what people have said about you, the hope of Christmas is for you. 
So we want to seal and settle that this morning. How do we know that? Well, we know that some from what we see here in Luke chapter 2. The beginning of Luke chapter 2 talks about the fact that Jesus was born there in Bethlehem. But then we're going to pick up in verse 8, okay? In the same region where Jesus was born, it says this, In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. By the way, real quick pause. This is why we can pretty well know that Jesus wasn't born on December 25th, okay? If he'd been born on December 25th, they wouldn't have been out in the fields. More likely it's spring, possibly fall, but more likely it's probably in the spring that they're out there. But we celebrate it because, again, like we talked about last week, this is the time that we start to see light come back after the winter solstice, okay? Interesting. As we're looking at this, verse 8, in the same region, shepherds were staying out in their fields, keeping a watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now, don't read that too quickly, okay? Think about this. Many of you guys have ever been camping, all right? We talked last week about my fear of the dark. Um, The woods make it a thousand times worse. If you've ever been out camping in the woods, and all of a sudden you see something that didn't used to be there, right? Okay, that's enough to startle you, correct? Okay, now imagine that that thing is an angel. Now, in case you're not familiar with what the Bible teaches us about angels, every time an angel shows up, the first thing they say is don't freak out, okay? So if your picture of an angel is a fat little cherub thing, that's not what angels are in the Bible. Angels are depicted in the Bible as God's warriors. They are the army of heaven, okay? So when they show up, think about you're in the middle of a field, in the middle of the night, all of a sudden this massive soldier shows up in front of you in full armor, full garb, whatever he's wearing. Oh, and by the way, he glows, okay? He's radiating the glory of God in that moment. Now, I think it's a very reasonable response, no matter who you are, to be scared witless at this point, right? I mean, you're in the middle of this, this thing, you're watching for wolves, you're watching for you know, things that are going to come mess with the sheep, but all of a sudden, there's a dude, he's a warrior, and he looks like he's on fire, okay? He, there's light emanating from him. This is also, remember, before like we had light that emanated from stuff. They had candles back then. They didn't have, you know, incandescent light bulbs that they're used to seeing things glow. So this is all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a glowing man stands in front of you and says, by the way, don't be afraid. Ha, isn't that great? I love the picture. The angel said to them, don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You'll find this baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Man, can you even imagine? We can't. We really can't. We can start kind of getting our our eyes around it a little bit, but... But think about that one angel who shows up and the glory of the Lord shines around him. And then all of a sudden, the sky is filled with angels and the glory of God in every corner. Man, what an incredible sight to see. I want us to focus on this idea that this baby that was born was coming to be the Savior of all people. The one who's bringing good news to all people anywhere in the world no matter what they've done, no matter where they are, no matter what society or anybody else has said about them, no matter their race, no matter what sins they struggle with, that they can find hope in Christ. 
Now, how do we know that? How do we know that those aren't just empty words that these guys had in, in some kind of collective hallucination one night? Well, we can tell that by looking at several different aspects of the characters that God used here in the Christmas story. The first place is by looking at Jesus's history. So keep your fingers there in Luke 2 and flip back over to Matthew chapter 1. Now, as you're flipping over to Matthew chapter 1, those of you who are familiar with your Bible might immediately groan just a little bit. This is the section that everybody loves to skip over because it's a long list of names. In fact, if you uh, have a King James, you're used to, you know, and Abraham begat Isaac, who begat Jacob, who begat, who begat, who begat, who begat, who begat, who begat. Okay, in a modern translation, it makes it a little bit less archaic, but it's still this list of this person fathered this person who fathered this person who fathered this person. And if you're like most people, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, or even if you're just kind of reading through the book of Matthew, you'll jump over these, right? Let's be honest that you're like, oh yeah, this is the genealogy part. We'll skip it. Well, here's what this is. If you're not familiar with it, this list of names is giving you Jesus's family history. Now, we know that that Jesus was uh, born of a virgin. However, as we look at Mary and Joseph's lineage, uh, as Joseph being the one through whom he would have his legal rights, Mary, the the one who actually is physically his mom. And, And as we look at those histories, we see that this really is a message of hope for all people. Now, we're not going to read through the whole list because I don't feel like pronouncing all of the names. Um, If you're looking for a good humorous way to do this, uh, there's a a Christian recording artist by the name of Andrew Peterson. Uh, Look up Matthew's Begats on YouTube and find Andrew Peterson's version. He sings the whole genealogy of Christ. It's pretty impressive. Um, I'm not going to do that this morning, though. Okay? What I do want to do, though, is I want to go through this list because we know who some of these people are as we look through it. As we're thinking about whether or not the hope of Jesus applies to you or to that relative that you don't like or the one that you know is so deeply engrossed in sin that they're so far from Christ, you wonder if you could actually save them. Let me give you a little bit of background on Jesus's family history, the son of God and the family that he came from. All right. Let's start at the very beginning of the list. If you look there on Matthew chapter 5, or 1, excuse me, verse, I'm, boy, can you tell I'm used to Sermon on the Mount this year? I just said Matthew chapter 5. <laughs> no, Matthew chapter 1 is where we are this morning. Looking there, starting there, you've got Abraham fathered Isaac. Oh, Abraham, a great hero of the faith, right? He's the one who is the founder of both the Jewish religion and actually the Islamic religion as well because of who his sons were. So this is looked at as one of the greatest men in history, both the founder of Islam and of Judaism, and, and his family line eventually became through Christians because he's in the line of Christ, right? So, man, this massive guy, what do we know about Abraham? Well, here's what we know about Abraham. He came from an area called Ur of the Chaldeans, uh, or Ur of the Hasidim, depending on who you ask. Could have been there in the Mesopotamian region, could have been a little bit farther up north. However, any way you cut it, the region he came from was not known for worshiping the one true God. In fact, it was known for worshiping the moon God. It's very likely that when God called Abraham to himself in the book of Genesis, that he was not a worshiper of the one true God. It's likely that he was involved in the moon worship that was rampant in the area around him. So he was an idolater when God called him to himself. And yet God did call Abraham out in his goodness and his grace. And it said that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham, this moon worshiper, puts his faith and trust in Christ and the promise that God had made, and he is saved. Now, just in case you forget, he wasn't always the greatest example of godliness, was he? What do we know Abraham did? Well, Abraham, apparently his wife Sarah, even though she was ancient, was really attractive. 
She was his half-sister. Now, remember, in those days, it was very different. Things were uh, different as far as family relationships go, and it was just a, a very different time. So it's not as weird as that sounds, okay? Um, however, she was his half-sister. And so there's on multiple occasions, Abraham, when they go somewhere, is worried that somebody's going to kill him to get a hold of Sarah. So he says, hey, let's lie instead and say that you're my sister and not tell him that you're my wife, okay? So he's a liar. By the way, in one of those occasions, he's given Egyptian slaves, which is interesting because then later we find that he has his wife there is not having a child. God's promised that Abraham would have a child. So she says, hey, why don't you sleep with my Egyptian slave and have a child through her? So through his lie, we now have an adulterous relationship that she gives birth to Ishmael, who ends up being the great-great-great-great-grandfather of the Arab nations. And the strife that's between the Arabs and the Jews all comes back to the fact that Abraham lied about the fact that it was his wife and not his sister. Interesting. And yet this guy who started a conflict that continues to rage to this day through his family is the first one in Jesus' family history. There's hope for me. If God can take Abraham and use him, well, just in case you, you miss it, let's go on a little bit further. Go down to verse 3 where it says, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, I'm not going to get into Tamar's story today because truthfully, it's salacious enough that it's difficult to talk about it in a PG kind of way on a Sunday morning. Suffice it to say, it happened through an inappropriate relationship that was illegitimate and wrong, and yet this is the line through which God brings the Messiah. So does that mean they were right in what they did? Absolutely not. But what it does mean is that God is good enough in his grace and his power and his majesty that he can take totally messed up situations. Okay, let's try to do this as tactfully as we can because some of you guys are not familiar with the story. In those days, if someone died and they did not have a child, their brother was supposed to then take his wife, have a child by her, and that child would be the legal heir to what the father should have had, the the husband that died should have been, okay? Now, I know it's a little bit confusing. So Judah had several sons, and Tamar was married to one of those sons. He died. The other brother refused to fulfill his obligation, and he died. And so throughout this, Judah says, all right, Here's what you need to do. You need to stay in my family, not remarry until my youngest son, who was much younger, grows up, and then you can marry him. Well, during this whole process, he ends up giving the youngest son away to somebody else. She's been waiting forever. So what, the, what Tamar decides to do is to trick her father-in-law and pretends to be a prostitute and prostitutes herself with her father-in-law. And Perez and Zerah are born out of that. Whoa. Yeah, and this is the genealogy of the Son of God. God can take a completely messed up situation and bring glory out of it. Isn't that insane how God can do that? Well, let's keep going. Here we have another situation. We go a little bit further down, and you see that Salmon fathered fathered Boaz by Rahab. Well, who was Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute who lived in the city of Jericho who hid spies and lied about it. But she was willing to follow the one true God, and so she and her family were saved, and she then becomes a part of the lineage of Christ. 
As you think about Christmas, is there hope for me? Absolutely. If there's hope for Tamar and Abraham and Rahab, and then how about Ruth? If you keep going down that next verse there, excuse me, the next line, you see Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess, okay? Now, that doesn't mean much to most of us, but if you go back to the, the book of Judges, you know what you find the people of Moab doing? They keep taking over and oppressing the Israelites, They're the ones who are fighting against God's people, and Ruth is one of those. Yet in God's sovereignty and his beauty and his plan, he uses Ruth, a Moabitess, as one of the the links in the chain that brings the Son of God to be the Savior for the whole world to any who will call on his name and be saved. There's hope for you, and there's hope for me. Jump down, verse 6. Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Boy, Matthew puts a nice dig in on that one. Puts his finger right into it. Why does he say that by Uriah's wife? Uriah was one of David's choice soldiers, one of his best men and most loyal. David wanted his wife Bathsheba for himself. When things got bad, he took Bathsheba to himself. She got pregnant. (laughs) David couldn't get Uriah to cover up the sin for him. So he had Uriah murdered in battle. He said, put him in the worst part of the battle and then have everybody fall back, leave him to die. The next child from David and Bathsheba, not that child, but the next child was Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. There's hope for me. If God can take David, Bathsheba, who some would say that she was an adulteress, but really due to David's position, if he asked for her, she had no right to refuse, so she was a victim of rape. And yet she is the one who is a part of this line through which God was redeeming the world. Isn't it incredible to think about all this? When you keep going from there, by the way, with the exception of Hezekiah and Josiah, most, if not all, of the other kings that are mentioned turned from God and led the nation to do so. Then, after the captivity, the names fall into oblivion. These are men that we know nothing about, and yet they're part of the lineage of Christ. So those who God redeemed, those who made terrible choices, those who history has forgotten, were all used by God to bring Jesus into the world so that when the angel said, I'm coming to bring hope to all men, good news for all the world, it's those of us who are messed up those of us who would fit well on the island of misfit toys. Now, I don't think I've ever identified between Charlie Brown and the island of misfit toys. Those are my two, like, things that I feel represent my personality better than just about anything else. I'm a jack-in-the-box named Charlie, right? And yet, the hope of Christmas is that there's hope for me as messed up as I am, as many dumb things as I've done, as many times as I've failed God. Just in case you're thinking this is an Old Testament thing, look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. (laughs) By the way, this is kind of funny because if you think about it, he kind of digs at us a little bit, but he's right. 
Consider your calling. When God called you, when God saved you, not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Indeed, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It's from him that you're in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not many of us were smart. Not many of us were noble. Not many of us were good. Guys, listen. If you remember, I've told you before, I was born with a speech impediment where I was never supposed to be able to do public speaking or singing. Okay? I wasn't supposed to be able to do this. Yet God in his grace and his mercy put people in my path who helped train me and equip me so that now I have the privilege of declaring the gospel publicly week in and week out by his grace and for his glory. Because see, the Bible says that the hope at Christmas is hope for people like me. People who talked so fast that I would run out of air in the middle of a sentence and nobody could understand what I was saying and had to learn phrasing. And you know what I had to do to learn that? I had to read out loud. You know what I do every week? I read out loud in public. God was equipping me in ways I couldn't have even begun to imagine because the story of Jesus, as you look through his history and all that God has been doing, is that there is hope even for me and for you and for every lost member of your family, every lost coworker, every lost person around the world. Anyone who will call on the name of the Lord can be saved. God's still in the business of showing grace to those who don't deserve it and using them in great ways in his kingdom. So I don't know what you've done today. I don't know where you are. I don't know what's taking place, but I can promise you that God can forgive and God can still use you in some way. That does not mean that God will always remove the consequences of your action. Actions have consequences and God doesn't always remove that, but God can forgive, God can restore, God can strengthen, God can use just like he did with Abraham and Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and David and all of these people. Jesus' history tells me that this is hope for me. But now let's move it closer to the actual moment when Jesus came. Let's look at Jesus' immediate family, all right? Look, look at Jesus' immediate family. Flip back over. Keep your finger in, in uh, Matthew because we're going to come back there in just a second. But look over actually at Luke chapter 1. In verse 26, you start seeing the story of when the angel Gabriel came to this young lady named Mary and told her that she was going to have a baby. Uh, It's incredible. In the sixth month of that year, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town called in Galilee called Nazareth, verse 27 of Luke chapter 1, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. I mean, wouldn't that be weird to you? Like if I walked up to you and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. That is just an unusual way of speaking, whether you're first century or now. If an angel shows up and tells you that, it's even more unusual. Yet, as you go through, the angel begins to express to her what's going to take place, that the Holy Spirit's going to have this, put this baby in her. She's going to have a baby. We don't know how all that works, but we do know this. Verse 34, Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I've not had sexual relations with a man? 
Verse 35, the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now look at Mary's response. I'm the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. What a faith from Jesus' mom. You guys realize she was probably like 13 to 15, somewhere in there. My daughter's 13. Can you imagine being 13 years old, 14, 15, maybe 16? And an angel says, oh, by the way, you're going to have a baby. How's that going to work? Oh, God's going to overshadow you. Power of the Most High is going to be on you. Oh, and this child, he's going to be called the Son of God. Can you imagine the depth of faith? Like, I'm 37, and that kind of stuff would would be difficult for me to swallow, right? But at her age, God had already brought her to a point where her response is, may it be done as you've said. Okay. Now, I'd had a lot more questions. But Mary was a lot wiser than I was, and wise enough to say, okay. Okay. That's what we see in Jesus' family, though. Yes, there's this good, godly young lady, but at the same time, she's a nobody. She's not known by anybody. She's not of, although David's descent is somewhere back in the line, she's not of royal blood. She's not in line for the throne anywhere. She's just this teenage girl who loved God and served him well. That means that God can use you, the unknown, the one that nobody really cares about or seems to notice. Now, sometimes guys have an idea that maybe God doesn't love us as much or can't use us as much because we're not as feely as our our wife may be. We don't have as many emotions. We're more closed off. Keep your finger there in Luke. Flip back over to Matthew again. Here we have the story of what happens to Joseph the man who was engaged to be married and the one who will act as Jesus' father on earth even though he had nothing to do with Jesus' conception. It said that when he found out that Mary was pregnant, he was going to try to do the best he could by her because, I mean, it was obvious that she had been with someone else and she had broken their vows. So he was going to put her away quietly because at this point, when you were betrothed to be married, when you were engaged, you couldn't just give the ring back and call it off. You actually had to get a writ of divorce. You had to, to divorce them because you were considered as good as married legally. So he's just going to put her away quietly, even though he actually could have her put to death for what seems to have taken place. Verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1 says this, But after he, being Joseph, after Joseph had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what's been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son. You're going to name him Jesus, and because he'll save his people from all their sins. Goes on a little bit further, jump down to verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but he didn't have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. That's it. Joseph was a strong, silent type, it seems. He realized there is not a single recorded word from Joseph in the entire Bible. Not the Old Testament Joseph, but Jesus earthly dad. Never recorded that he said a single word. 
But what's recorded is when God spoke to him, he did what God told him to do. And he followed through to the end. This is the family that Jesus was born into, an obscure family that nobody really knew without any kind of royal lineage, with maybe a strong, silent kind of dad, and a mom who was scared but willing to be faithful. It's into this environment that the Son of God came. So maybe you're the strong, silent type. You're not going to be one who's ever going to come down to the altar, really, and pour your heart out and cry and things like that. That's just not how God's wired you. There's nothing wrong, by the way, if you are a man and that's how you are. I cried watching The Mandalorian on Friday night. So, I mean, that's how I am, all right? I cried everything. But if you're that more stoic, kind of reserved guy, that's not necessarily wrong. You can be used of God to be the earthly protector dad who took care of Mary and shielded her from all of the people who would abuse her because of what they assumed took place. You realize that by not divorcing her, he entered into her shame, right? Mary would have been shamed for obviously having had some kind of relationship before she got married to Joseph. So by Joseph taking her, everyone would have thought it was Joseph that was the father of the baby. You willing to be that strong? For the guys who are the strong, silent type, there's hope for you at Christmas. For the young lady who's confused and has no idea what's going on, but is just willing to say, okay, God, whatever it takes, there's hope for you at Christmas. Pretty incredible. But not just Jesus' family history and not just his immediate history, but then we see it beyond just what's going on with Jesus himself as we look at Jesus' welcoming party. Jesus' welcoming party. Now, this is back in Luke chapter 2, so you can go ahead and flip back over there. That's the last time we're going to flip around uh, this morning. We already picked up there in Luke 2 about, in the same region, verse 8, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. You see, these are the men to whom the message of the gospel is first declared outside of Jesus' family. Outside of Mary and Joseph, these are the first ones to hear what's really going on. Although Zechariah and Elizabeth had heard that it was coming, this was the first people to actually know that the Messiah had come, the one that was anticipated, and it's a group of shepherds. Now, for those of us who don't understand shepherds, let me remind you of some facts about these guys. These were lonely men who worked really, really hard. One author described their work this way, and it's a little bit of a long excerpt, but I'm just going to go with me, okay? In early morning, a shepherd would lead forth the flock from the fold, marching at its head to the spot where they were to be pastured. Here he watched them all day, taking care that none of the sheep strayed, and if for for a time eluded his watch and wandered away from the rest, he would seek it diligently till he found it and brought it back. In those lands, sheep require to be supplied regularly with water, and the shepherd for this purpose has to guide them either to some running stream or wells dug in the wilderness and furnished with troughs. At night, he brought the flock home to the fold, counting them as they passed under the rod at the door to assure himself that none were missing. Nor did his labors always end at sunset. Often he had to guard the fold through the dark hours from the attack of wild beasts or the wily attempts of the prowling thief. Hard-working, loner kind of guys. Now, in our world, because so many of us do knowledge work, there's almost a little bit of mystique for hard-working guys. You know, guys that work with their hands and do difficult things, you know, that, that there's some respect that comes from working 
with your hands like that, but not in those days. In fact, shepherds in those days had a reputation around town. Other sources indicate to us that a shepherd's testimony was not legally admissible in court because they were known as being so shady and so shifty. And these are the first people who get to hear that the Messiah has come. The ones who are told that this is good news for all of the world, it's these unsuspecting men that the birth of the Savior is announced to first. This group of rough, grimy men was the first group outside of his family to know that Jesus was born. Isn't it a marvelous fact that God didn't start with the powerful or the wealthy, those in Jerusalem or in Rome, but instead those shepherds who were grimy, hardworking, some say untrustworthy men on the backside of nowhere, and they're the ones who find out that the Messiah has come to save the world. See, there's hope for me in that. By coming to the least and the outcasts, the the regular Joes, if you will, Jesus was turning the world upside down. He came to bring hope of salvation, of peace with God that goes deeper than our suffering, and a hope for being a part of his kingdom both now and the future. And he offers that hope to anyone, regardless of how they've sinned, regardless of their status, their education, or their wealth. He came to bring hope to us all. This baby that was born in a small town to a largely unknown family, but was heralded by angels and welcomed by shepherds, came to give hope to me. And that baby would grow just like the angel predicted. He would become the savior of the world. We've said it a few times throughout this already, but he would pay the ultimate price by dying on the cross for my sin, to take what I've done wrong and to die in my place, be raised from the dead to prove that he had overcome sin and death. And now he's calling anyone, no matter how famous, no matter how unknown, no matter how grimy, no matter what you've dealt with, no matter what others have said about you, he's calling you to come to him for life. That's what we saw last week in John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. So the question from you this morning is that have you come to the place of believing in this one who was born for you. Not just had knowledge, not just knowing facts about it, not believing that these things were true, but a belief that says he said that he came to die and be raised so that I could have life and that I can trust in him and have eternal life. Have you come to that point where you have placed that belief and that trust in him? I don't care what you did last night. I don't care what you watched. I don't care where you were. I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care what sins you struggle with. There is hope for you today. If you'll believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, put your faith and trust in the God who loved you so much to die in your place and was raised to give you new life so that as you trust him, you can have your sins forgiven and you can walk in a new life with him. That's the hope of Christmas. We all have a desire at some level to be the best at something or to make ourselves significant somehow, but in our hearts apart from Christ, we all have to confess that there's a nagging feeling that we will never be enough. The hope of Christmas frees me from that. 
Because the hope of Christmas tells me that because Jesus was born and died and raised to bring salvation to all men, that means you matter. That means you have significance. You have value. You have worth because the God of the universe said so. He made you in his image and he sent his son to ransom you. Whether you're Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Tamar, whoever you are. Whether you're a young girl who's confused and doesn't know what's going on or the strong, silent, stoic leader or a shepherd on the backside of a hill. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, you can be saved. You can find significance and hope and joy that's only available through Christ. So my question for you this morning is, have you surrendered to him? If so, that hope is for you. Now, if if you're here today and you've never done that, I want to invite you just to take a moment where you are, whether that's here with us or listening to this as you're driving along in the car or watching this online, wherever you may be, take a moment where you are and surrender to him. Say, God, I know I've sinned. I know I've fallen short of your glory. I know I've done things I'm not supposed to do. I want to turn from that and I want to turn to following you. If you're willing to confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But if you're here and you've done that, twofold. One, Think back to where you were when Jesus found you. Remember how good God is to have saved you, to walk with you all this time. And then number two, take some time here in just a minute. I'm going to pray. While I'm praying, would you think of one individual right now who you want to pray for that person to come to know the hope of Christ? Being honest, it may be somebody you've given up on somebody you think is too far gone. The hope of Christmas is for them. Any who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that as a nine-year-old boy, I heard about what Jesus had done for me. And as you brought that message to me, you drew me to yourself and into a relationship with you. God, as I look back at the way that you have walked with me since then, I confess that I've not always been who I need to be. I've sinned more than I would care to admit. I've doubted you more days than I would be happy to sign off. And yet because of your grace and your goodness, because of who Jesus is, you offer to save even me. So I thank you for that. I thank you that today my hope is not in my righteousness or what I can do, but in what Jesus and what he alone has done for me. So today I ask that you would bring that hope to someone who doesn't have it yet. God, you know I have a name on my heart of someone who I want to see you save. Someone who, to the best of my understanding, doesn't have a relationship with you. God, would you draw this individual to yourself? Would you save him? 
Would you help him to believe in the one you have sent? God, would you bring your hope into his life today? As we go out this week to a world that is celebrating your birth, whether they know it or not, would you help us to be agents of hope to point people to you? God, we thank you for the hope we have in Christ, the hope we have this Christmas. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.